0: Hi, it's she again. I'm coming up on today's show, Enbridge's Line 5. The clock is ticking. It's to be shut down May 13th. We'll talk with a researcher from Europe who's been looking into real-world data on emissions from hybrid vehicles. And you've heard about this epicurious flap. They'll no longer post beef recipes on their website. We'll speak with Bob Lowe, the president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, for their response. The clock is ticking. On Enbridge Line 5, May 13th, two weeks from today, was the deadline that was set by uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer when she announced that she wanted that line closed. That was back in November she made that statement. Now, obviously, this is a matter of national interest for Canada uh, and Alberta, and while many feel the federal government completely ruled over on Keystone, apparently, we're being told, they are working frantically through diplomatic channels to try and save Line 5. Are they getting anywhere? What can we expect as we get closer and closer to this deadline? Will it come to pass? Joining us now is Dan McTague, who is president um, of Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former federal Liberal MP. Dan, thanks for joining us again. Always, Always fun to chat.
1: It is, uh, and on uh, a great topic that uh, should uh, get a lot more attention, especially uh, shade in eastern Canada.
0: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I think when we talk about pipelines, typically that's seen as an Alberta issue. But let's uh, let's just define exactly what this Line 5 does, because it's, it's of utter importance to not only eastern Canada, but a lot of places in the U.S. too. Yeah,
1: 580,000 barrels of Alberta light oil uh, travel uh, and have been traveling since 1953 uh, across uh, part of the country, dipping down into the United States and then crossing uh, the Strait of Mackinac. Uh, That's the body of water about six kilometers wide that uh, separates Lake Huron uh, from Lake Michigan. And, uh, of course, then the pipeline makes its way through Michigan to then cross once again, uh, at uh, Sarnia near the, uh, uh, at Port Huron, uh, the mouth of the uh, St. Clair uh, Detroit rivers. And that's really where uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, a decision made by uh, Michigan to decide uh, that on the 13th of May, uh, the company will no longer have the right, uh, a right given by the state to be able to sell uh, or be able to transit any fuel or oil through those pipelines. Not only that, though; it's not just oil. It's also natural mm-hmm. gas liquid, big word for uh, secondary pipeline. But that's really product needed uh, for refining uh, uh, propane, and which, of course, not just uh, Eastern Canada, Quebec, Ontario, Maritimes, but also Michigan right. tends to use a lot of. So, a lot of uh, there are a lot of factors at play here, and uh, it's not just one particular fuel. It's all uh, it's 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 the refineries in Ontario all of them, which use the oil from this particular pipeline, which uh, then turn it into gasoline, diesel, and of course, jet fuel. Why is that important? Well, when Eastern Canadians talk about, uh, you know, airlines, uh, their most important airport is Pearson in Toronto. That is 100% serviced by the oil coming from that pipeline. So, shut that down, and you might as well just say goodnight to airline activity, as far as the nation's number one uh, international uh, airport.
0: So, Dan, With all of this importance and all this economic activity and, you know, I mean, how vital it is to not only Canada, but to the United States, what is the reasoning? Why did the governor come out and say this? She's worried about leaking into the Great Lakes, correct? That's the issue here? Yeah, she's been uh, goaded by Dana Nestle.
1: Dana has been the attorney general of that uh, state going back to 2012, 2011, when Enbridge had another pipeline that leaked in the Kalamazoo River and did a lot of damage. Now, Enbridge has since cleaned it up and uh, ensured it wouldn't happen again. But that really left a a bitter taste in the mouth of Michiganians who uh, saw this as uh, uh, a prime example of what happens when you don't have a pipeline that operates properly, and the risk is always there, an anchor strike, a ship hits it, or or some other unforeseen disaster. Nothing, of course, has happened uh, in it's 53. In, in 60, I'm trying to go back in time here because it's that old. Uh, you know, I, I'm 58, so I have to add another. In 67 years, <laughs> that pipeline has never had an issue. It's never leaked. And now, of course, Enbridge is willing to spend and has already applied for, for some yes. time, a permit to, to go uh, well below the uh, the floor, the bed, the waterbed, and to uh, build a tunnel. Uh, so, you know, and they've uh, been humming and hawing about that as well. Recently, yesterday, I saw this, a story uh, from one of the Michigan press saying they may have found five rocks that might have shown a formation of 10,000 years ago created by Indigenous people twenty, thirty, forty 40 feet underwater. So, you know, you've got every Tom, Dick, and Harry coming out and finding reasons why this thing should be shut down, the, fact, the effect on Canada, uh, and I suspect, suspect the U.S. Midwest eastern part, would be devastating. You know, there's a lot of talk today about gas shortages going into the summer. I'm saying to those experts in the United States, many of whom I worked with in the past, uh, that they will have to wait until the summer for a good part of eastern Canada <laughs> and the northeastern part of the United States. The shortages is uh, coming in right after May 13th if this goes
0: through. Now, what's, I mean, I know that um, the Prime Minister has said he's spoken to Joe Biden about it, and apparently we're being told there is all kinds of high-level discussions going on uh, behind the scenes that we aren't privy to, but all kinds of Canadian politicians and American politicians are working to try and uh, stop this. Are we seeing any progress from, because apparently the governor is unmovable on this, from what I've seen. Yeah, she's unmovable, and I
1: think uh, the public is probably not behind her, but the, reality is that we have been picking away at finding ways to shut down pipelines. We've done a very good job at that. Both uh, the Biden administration and the Trudeau government have uh, uh, done enormous damage uh, to their credibility and the credibility of building pipelines in this country. So it's a little hypocritical for the Canadian Liberal government to come out and say, hey, we want this pipeline kept. When you've actually been uh, engineering the destruction of the Energy East pipeline, the Northern Gateway pipeline, and pretty much spiked, uh, you know Trans Mountain, and finding every excuse under the sun before you finally had to realize at the last minute you had to buy the damn thing, costing uh, taxpayers up to fourteen billion bucks or more, uh, and the thing still isn't built. I say that because it's kind of ironic that the people who've been against pipelines because of their uh, their 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 craze with climate change and net zero are now backpedaling very quickly to realize that they've created, uh, really opened a Pandora's box of their own making, and they can't close the damn thing. And unfortunately, uh, we're only uh, days away from a potential shutdown if the Michigan governor continues to dig in her heels. And she's no small potatoes when it comes to the Democrats in Washington. Why? Why? She's the vice president of the Democratic uh, Convention. National is, convention. Uh, yeah. One of the highest national parties. She's one of the highest ranked people in the Democratic Party, which is all about this stuff. So uh, my guess is it's still 50-50. The courts might ultimately decide. Yeah, that, I wanted to ask that, you about the cause cause It is in the courts,
0: right? I mean, they, they've they've got some legal proceedings that started up a couple of weeks ago. Do you think there's any chance yeah. that that might provide a remedy here?
1: Yeah, I think it does. Temporary, uh, But remember, there was a day last July, media didn't pick up on this, where we actually had the pipeline was uh, an injunction failed, and uh, they had to shut down the pipeline for a day, or at least they thought they had to. Uh, but at last minute, they got another judge to overturn that decision. So this is, we're, we're playing with fire here, and it looks like, uh, if it doesn't happen now, and I, I, I really hope it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I know some people, uh, you know, have friends of mine in Alberta, think it'd be a wonderful thing to teach Eastern Canada a lesson right. and wake them up. But this is going to happen, and unless there's an alternative, like Energy East, where there is an existing mainline pipeline that can be converted rad- radically, Uh, It's only a matter of when, not if, this thing closes down.
0: Okay, Dan, let's play out the worst-case scenario here. You touched on a couple of things. If this pipeline does get shut down two weeks from today, what happens uh, three weeks from today and three months from today and a year from today uh, in terms of impact on closing this down?
1: Well, of course, the company uh, will have to ship by rail, will ship by sea, will ship by truck. Of course, that will send prices through the roof, and it will create within about a week and a half Two weeks of disruption, that we'll start to see reductions uh, in uh, in commitments to uh, refineries. Refineries will then have to either close or cut back, or have to uh, uh, you know rework the, uh, the logistics uh, throughout the United States to get access to oil. Any way you slice it, uh, you know, uh, Torontonians, uh, um, Ontario, Quebec are looking at a probably at least a minimum twenty cent a liter increase. More like fifty or sixty, and of course the uh, what will come into play is yellow tape. And you'll see a lot of it at gas stations as they close down one by one. They you will shut down, it. of course, our international hub uh, or as Airports I mentioned earlier, and of course uh, Canadians can find uh, maybe get back to the good old days of burning coal charcoal for their barbecues because there won't be a lot of propane available. This now that's three weeks, three four weeks, yeah. three or four months, same thing. Uh, six or eight months colder weather, then we're in re- we're really in the pickle. Why the Great Lakes shuts down for half of the year, the, and you cannot transit a lot of that oil, even if you could uh, via uh, by, via Great Lakes uh, uh, navigation. So then you're really in the soup. And uh, this is all worst case scenario. Uh, some of this obviously will never happen, uh, but uh, you know it's a wake up call. And I say that because in my former job at Gas Buddy. Every single year, when we talked about emergency management, we have deployed something called the uh, the uh, uh, outage tracker to let people know you know when hurricanes are taking place in the United yeah, States yeah. where gas stations are open. Bottom line. Every one of the emergency management officials from Ohio and Michigan, every single time we presented, would pull me aside and say, Listen, you've got a background in politics. You were in foreign affairs. For God's sakes, would you get your governments to smarten up on this the federal and the provincial governments are asleep at the switch and they have been for the past yeah. three years? Actually I couldn't even get Canadian press, who I talked to, and I won't mention names, three or four times and said this is an issue, it's a growing issue couldn't interest in it now of course it's uh, final hours and uh, i hope i'm wrong
0: yeah it is final hours that's the issue that's where we are and uh we'll have to wait and see what happens we've got two weeks from today uh and
1: Finger, uh, fingers crossed i'm praying for the
0: country for what could be a majorly impactful uh development okay dan always a pleasure thanks for giving us some insight on what's going on there great to be here again Shay. have a great weekend you bet you too thank you uh that is dan mctaig who is president of canadians for affordable energy and the former federal liberal mp We hear about electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles and how they're a big part of this uh, transition off of fossil fuels, right? And certainly the potential is there, obviously. If you're using electric engines, you're you're not using nearly as much um, fossil fuel. There's there's no arguing with that. But are they doing everything that they are cracked up to do right now? No, is the short answer. Um, They produce far more emissions Um, and carbon dioxide in the real world than we're told they do based upon lab tests. Um, So we're going to get into that a little bit right now. Joining us, we have Dr. Patrick Plotz, who is coordinator of Business Unit Energy Economy with the Fraunhofer Institute for Systems and Innovation Research. Uh, Doctor, thank you for taking some time with us today. I appreciate it. Hello, good morning. Yeah, uh, you guys uh, finally did something that I think a lot of people have been wondering, because we, everything we hear about the hybrid vehicles and the electric vehicles and things like that is based largely on um, potential in labs, right? You actually sat down and took the re- a look at the real-world data? Yeah, that's
2: true. We uh, actually took the time to collect a lot of real-world data from existing studies, but we also collected a bit of our own data, and uh, in total we were able to analyze more than 100,000 of these plug-in hybrid electric vehicles.
0: And you, these are vehicles that are in our country of Canada, China, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, all around the world. So it's a pretty broad spectrum that you're looking at. What did you find in terms of actual emissions in the real world with these vehicles?
2: Yeah, so one of the basic outcomes is that uh, these vehicles, they do have the potential to drive a lot of on electricity, and some vehicles actually do, but the vast majority of those vehicles use more conventional fuel than one would actually expect them to use from laboratory tests. And uh, one of the main reasons uh, that we could identify was that people do not charge these vehicles as often as, what one, as one
0: would think. Yeah, so the potential there, if people were charging them more and using more of the electric components of the vehicle, it could do far better than it is, but people just aren't. Is that the takeaway? Yeah, basically that's the main takeaway. Why not? Why aren't? Is it just? Be, is it a convenience issue at this point? e
2: uh, well, maybe not so much convenience. I think there are some users that uh, do not have easy access to electricity yeah. in a garage at home, but I think that's only a, a minor share of the people. Um, no. One of the reasons is that uh, people take more long-distance trips than one would expect. So initially you would think uh, people have a daily commute, they drive more or less the same distance every day, and they return home every night, and then they would plug in their vehicle. But it turns out uh, people do a bit more of long-distance trips uh, away from home, visiting friends or family, and then they would not recharge their and um, there's a special group of users, which is uh, particularly relevant in Europe, uh, which are
1: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just
2: around the corner. Luckily,
1: ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work,
0: more clean.
2: Terms apply. Company car users. So the vehicle actually belongs to the company, but they're allowed to use it uh, for business, but also for private purposes. And uh, they usually uh, get to refuel with conventional fuel for free, but... uh, many of them would have to pay for electricity themselves at home. And uh, especially for the latter group, it's very easy to understand that they do not recharge as much at home as you would want them to. Sure.
0: Yeah, it makes sense, right? Um, So, no, we're not saying um, that this is a, a failed experiment by any means. The potential is certainly there, and these can be used in a much more efficient manner. It's just we need to do some things to make that happen more commonly.
2: Yes, exactly. And we uh, identified a a wide range of policy options to convince people to charge more frequently or to drive on electricity uh, more frequently. And uh, one obvious measure is um, to make charging options widely available, both at homes and at workplaces and in public. Uh, second thing would be to make it as cheap as possible, because um, if electricity is cheap, uh, it makes a lot of economic sense to drive as much as possible on electricity. And um, <clears throat> a third very simple option is to make car manufacturers buy those vehicles with longer electric ranges. So mm. some of the models have uh, rather limited electric ranges of, let's say, 30 to 40 kilometers, or around 20 miles. And uh, obviously, the longer the electric range, uh, the more they would also drive on electricity.
0: Now, Doctor, as far as I know, and the hybrids I've seen in this part of the world anyway, primarily don't plug in. They, they have an electric component that's charged as you drive. Um, so when we're talking about the differences in these kinds of vehicles, there are hybrids that are actually, you can plug them in as well as... Um not just have them charge as you're driving? Is that more common in Europe, or am I missing something?
2: Uh i'm well it, maybe it's a bit more common in europe but um but you 're right there there are the both kinds of vehicles they're both called hybrids there's the right. mm, the, the so called mild hybrids where the prime example is the Toyota Prius, which cannot be plugged in right. and uh, there's there's a second group and and the Toyota Prius would not be called an electric vehicle strictly speaking because um for real mm, conventional fuel savings you need a vehicle with a somewhat bigger battery that can be directly recharged over the grid. And um, of those actual electric vehicles, uh, which can be plugged in, uh, there are these two kinds, one which only have a battery and an electric motor, and the second group which have a somewhat smaller battery, an electric motor, and an additional combustion engine. Right. So, and, and the latter group, they are called plug-in hybrids because they are a hybrid, but they can also be plugged in.
0: Does any one of those perform better than the others? I mean, we we know that, you know, in terms of distance and things like that, the completely electric plug-in and recharge ones are, you know, especially in our country, which is so spread out. It's very difficult. Um, The hybrid one seems to be... uh, The possibilities seem to be a little bit better there. Do I have that right?
2: Um, Yeah, so they... I mean, the hybrids, which cannot be plugged in, they save a bit of of, of energy and they save a bit of fuel. But their savings potential is quite limited because they can only drive uh, very short distances on electricity. But those that can be plugged in, they they have a serious potential to really save uh, conventional fuel and also save greenhouse gas
0: emissions. Interesting information, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Patrick Plotz, the Coordinator of Business Unit Energy Economy with the Franhofer Institute for Systems and Innovation Research. A pretty popular food and recipe website called Epicurious has caused quite a stir this week. Apparently they have about a million, million and a half people who... Uh, I don't know, subscribe or check out this website or whatever the case may be. Well, they have announced that they will no longer have anything to do with beef-based recipes on this site. They say, quote, listen to this, cutting out just a single ingredient, beef, can have an outsized impact on making a person's cooking more environmentally friendly. Our shift is solely about sustainability, about not giving airtime to one of the world's worst climate offenders. Wow. Pretty harsh statement, and one that is in no way a matter of settled science and bulletproof data. Not even close. There's a lot of people who say they are completely out to lunch on this. Now, Joining us to give us a response is Bob Lowe, who is the president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. Uh, Bob, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having us. Sir. So, Bob, some pretty inflammatory language there. One of the world's worst climate offenders. Your reaction to what uh, Epicurus did this week?
3: Well, you know, they're, they can publish anything they want. It's their magazine. Mm-hmm. And people have the choice to eat anything they want. We're lucky we live in, in a society that, that allows that. Yeah. But to do it for all the wrong reasons, is that, that's kind of disheartening to say the least.
0: Yeah, and like I said, the science here that they're talking about, from what I've read, is really up for debate. You know, does the beef industry create greenhouse gases? Sure. But to what level is far from settled science? And, and I understand they're basing it on an almost 10-year-old report. So so what do they have wrong in terms of, you know, the impact of, of cattle farming?
3: So they're basing it on a report that came out of the UN that's quite, a, quite old. And as you said, 10 years old, you can't you can't compare the the cattle's uh, effect on the environment in Canada the same as you can in parts of Africa or India. Mm-hmm. You know, India where cattle, well, a large portion of them, just wander around and never do turn into beef. Okay, that's going to really skew the percentages of well, we'll talk methane compared to kilograms of beef. It's it's you can't compare the two in Canada. The cattle industry actually accounts for two point four percent of our of the methane, not seventeen or whatever percentage that they're quoting, eleven or fifteen. I can't even remember the percentage, but we're two point four in in Canada, where you compare that to transportation is
0: twenty eight. So right, yeah, and yeah, and the beef industry is not saying that this isn't an issue. You've recognized that this yeah. is something that you can you can work on, and you have correct.
3: Well, we've we've. Worked, we've done a lot in the last 30 years to reduce our carbon footprint or our environmental footprint. Um, right now, there's ongoing research on cutting methane emissions further yet, you know, by different feed additives, by different things. I mean, as the science comes out, we'll adopt it. But, you know, we, you know, we did a, a life cycle analysis, I think, seven or eight years ago mm-hmm. to find out where we were at a spot in time. And, you know, we took the the good, the bad, and the ugly, and so out of that came uh, commitment to improve ourselves. We've set seven long-term goals. Four of them just got announced. Three got announced last September. Four of them were just announced a week ago to basically to challenge the industry to, to improve even more. We can't. You know, you, unless you've got a goal, you, if you don't know where you're going. You're never going to get there. So, right, yeah. we're working at it all the time. We live, you know, we live in the environment. We 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 have just just as much or more of a respect for the environment than, than most people.
1: Yeah, because you have we're
3: to. we're part of it. We have to. So, you know, we're as concerned about climate change and, and the environment as anyone else.
0: You know, I mean, there are people who say that actually, you know, um, the cattle industry is a net benefit to the environment, right, in terms of carbon sinks and other things. Like, there's an argument to be made that it's actually, you know, it's helping on this front.
3: You're absolutely right. Uh, This is, you know, in Canada. We can't talk anywhere outside of Canada. But, yeah, if you look, you know, one guy said, why do we just always talk about emissions? Why don't we talk about the whole carbon cycle? You know, cattle are, are grazing cattle, sequester carbon. To the, tune, to the tune of a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they'll, they'll be sequestering carbon. They also buy, be, and what a lot of people don't realize, the North American, uh, Northern Plains grasslands are one of the most biodiverse and threatened ecosystems in the world. Without cattle grazing those grasslands, they're going to turn into cropland or something else, or they'll just degrade. To nothing, yeah. you know. Cattle are actually saving that ecosystem, and it is, based with world. I mean, world wildlife funds uh, own numbers. It's one of the the most important and most endangered ecosystems on the planet. Like I said,
0: right? Yeah. Now, uh, Bob, maybe I'm crazy. I mean, like I said, I, I've never heard of this epicurious. I don't know. Um, now, I know it's your job to promote the industry and defend it from these kinds of attacks and, and, and try and get, you know, the the information out to these people. But my thinking is, who cares? These guys are a website. You know what I mean? Um, but it's it's the cumulative effect, right? I mean, that's what you're facing is in terms of, here's the, here's the actual science, you know, in terms of preserving the grasslands and all the rest of these sorts of things. It just, is it, a constant effort for you to try and get that information out, despite things like this happening.
3: It is, you know, I, I believe, and then COVID has actually helped uh, consumers realize, you know, they're realizing more than they have done for probably generations that that food is is fairly important. I think, we're went a lot of generations that food was just taken for granted. Mm-hmm. There is a, a movement, and I don't know why. I've got a pretty good idea, but to get rid of animal agriculture, to save the planet. Well, actually, if you look at the science, if you get rid of animal agriculture, you aren't going to save the planet, you're going to harm the planet. We've, we've been, uh, spent the last three days putting together a submission to the United Nations for their food security summit coming up yeah. in the fall. Uh, we had a presentation from a, a lady who's a, a doctor of something. She actually works for the FAO, which is part of the UN. And one of the numbers that stuck in my head, if you take 0.6 kilograms of a plant-based protein and a cow eats that, she turns that into one kilogram of a meat-based protein. So, there's, I mean, there's, it's almost, it almost doubles the amount of protein uh, coming from a cow as it does just coming directly from the plant.
0: Yeah, nope. so I mean, uh, you've got science to, to, to back up what you're saying. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you trying to get this message out <laughs> and counter the misinformation.
3: Well, we need, we need to do that, and we need, you know, we don't have the money that some of these huge corporations do. Yeah. To, to back, you know, obviously Epiteria's got some money from somewhere. Right. To, to, to promote this. We don't have the money to do that. You know, one thing that we would like to see is some of the some of the major food companies step up. You know, there has been one or two, but in a more of a mass supporting the beef industry. Yeah, absolutely. You we know, we brought the most of the environmental NGOs on side because we're all working for the same end to to protect the environment. Uh, so the science is all there; everything's there. You know, one of the people on this these calls putting this thing together for the UN said it can't be old guys like me promoting the beef industry. It's got to be young hip ranchers.
0: Yeah.
3: And I, I said, so you mean I'm not a young hip rancher? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the consensus was I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but we, you know, we're, we're really confident in what we produce. We, we, eat our own production. I don't think we want to, we certainly don't want to eat something that's going to be hurting us or the environment we like I say, we need the environment rely to exist. we rely on it. it has to be here. You know the rains or doesn't rain that, that directly affects
0: our livelihood and and the cattle that we're looking after, little things like that, yeah, there's not a lot of industries that work more closely with the land than what you guys do, and you know the importance is is obvious, so it makes perfect sense to me bob sure and
3: and you know. Uh, take this one more step because you know we're, we've been talking about grazing livestock and things mm-hmm. but if you look at the feeding uh, the the feed yards the feedlots actually help uh cattle on a total grass-based diet uh will actually emit more methane than cattle in the feed yard situation okay and a lot of that is the feed yards is more concentrated feed and they just Sure. They just turn into a hamburger quicker. Yeah, exactly. But the other big part of that is you know, people talk about how cattle are eating food, a lot of these anti animal people, animal agriculture people talk about cattle eating food that could be used by humans. And to a, to a small degree that's right. I think in Canada the number is like eighty two percent of what a what a bovine eats is grass and weeds and things that we can't eat. Yes, yeah. So then, then you come to the other 18%, and, and it's 7 or 9% of that is wasted crops that that might have been going into the food chain, but for one reason or another, drought or wet or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, they they can't be consumed by people. And, I mean, in our case right here, we feed about 50 tons of vegetables a week. Wow. Now, that's stuff that, we'll go to a landfill. We've got to deal with, a, with a, a grocery wholesaler in Calgary and the stuff that they can't get to the shelf. Yep. For lost one tea. reason or another, bruised potatoes or something, we, we bring it down here. We turn that into beef. So it's, it's you know, it's
0: upcycling, I guess, if you want to put that yeah. way. It's yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. Reallocating what would be a lost resource.
0: Well, Bob, so, I'm well, going to do my best this weekend and have a big old beef barbecue. Oh, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> Did it last night. I'll do it again tonight. So. Good. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm strongly in your corner, sir, um, and I appreciate you taking some time with us this morning.
3: Okay, and, and can I say just one more thing? Sure, yeah, go ahead. To get in here on May 4th, and this is for people who, who want to really see what cattle do, we collaborated with Ducks Unlimited Canada. Yes. And Nature Conservancy Canada. To put out a documentary called Guardians of the Grasslands. This is going to make its public launch on May fourth, and and if, if you really want to learn how cattle are a solution for climate change, yeah, go to guardiansofthegrasslands.com, dot com and and it's it's a pretty eye opening little
0: documentary. I will do that, Bob. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. You have a great weekend, sir. You too.